Thanks for choosing a 3CR podcast. Throughout June, we're running our annual Radiothon, when we ask you, the listener, to make a donation so that we can continue to make great radio. Your donation will help keep us community-owned and community-controlled. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate. And with that done, please enjoy your podcast. Well, good afternoon, listeners. This is the DOGS program, the Australian Council for Defence of Government Schools. And we're here to promote and to defend public education and also to promote the idea of separation of religion from the state, which is a very important principle which underlies the health of public education. But um, And for this reason, of course, we're very much against uh, the uh, subsidisation of private schools with taxpayers' money. Uh, for our press release this week, which is uh, on our website at www.adogs.info, we're going to talk a bit about um, separation of religion from the state and go to America and remember a, a really quite religious man, a Baptist minister actually, called Dr Martin Luther King who was one of the greats of the 20th century and where he stood on this issue. Uh, because it's actually important sometimes to remind us about the meaning of these principles. As well as that, we're going to go back to look again at the funding situation in Australia and what happened to the Gonski Nirvana. Remember back in 2011, they were going to bury the funding issue I mean, they were saying that in 1973 and the funding issue is still not buried. It seems to be very much alive, well kicking and um, very unpleasant at the moment. Sorrel and Dale are going to tell us about that. And Jeff is going to um, read for us a very interesting article which he found, Educational Inequality in a Tale of Two Schools. And uh, then Maddie is going to tell us about what happened when the Minister for Education in New South Wales went to Prairie Wood uh, High School and what the teachers did. Jeff, as always, has got some very interesting American news for us and we will complete the program with our great state school from Maddie. So let's get on with it, shall we? Over to you, Oliver and King. Thank you, Jean. This is Press Release 926, Remembering Dr Martin Luther King, an Advocate of Church-State Separation. Dogs are advocates of separation of religion from the state because entanglement of religion and the state are bad for religion, bad for the state, and bad for public education. They're not against religion. The person's belief system is a central part of their very being, but they are wary of the dangers of mixing religion with the lust for wealth and power. The current state of education funding in Australia is evidence of the effect this has upon the opportunities and well-being of large numbers of our children. Contrary to the public face of many religious people in Australia 
and America, not all Christians favor entanglement of church and state. In recent weeks, Americans celebrated the birthday and achievement of Dr. Martin Luther King. King was a committed Christian, a pastor of the Baptist church, but he was a strong church-state separationist. It's a pity we do not have more of his kind in Australia. In remembering him, Rob Boston of Americans United for separation of church and state has this to say, and Kim will help us here. Thanks, Ollie. So Rob Boston says the following. King was no advocate of partisan politicking in the pulpit. While King, a Baptist minister, spoke powerfully about issues of racial justice and equality from pulpits, he didn't see the need to hand out candidate endorsements in church. The late US Rep John Lewis, who worked with King in the 60s, pointed out several times that King did not electioneer in church. During an October 1st, 2002 debate on the floor of the U.S. House of Representatives, Lewis said ministers who led the civil rights movement did not select political candidates and operate our churches like political action committees. Although their churches and leaders faced violence and hatred for their efforts to protect human rights and human dignity, they were free and even protected by the Constitution to speak out on these issues. At no time did we envision out or even contemplate the need for our houses of worship to become partisan pulpits. King also did not support the religious rights attack on reproductive rights. He was an advocate of family planning. For his work on this issue, King in 1966 was given an award by Planned Parenthood in recognition of his support for being a leader in the fight for reproductive justice. Accepting the award on his behalf, King's wife, Coretta Scott King, read a statement from King during which he cited the Black community's special and urgent concern over family planning issues. King supported the Supreme Court's decision striking down government-sponsored prayer in public schools. King was asked about this issue during a January 1965 interview with Playboy magazine written by Alex Haley. King not only backed the high court's ruling, but he also noted that his frequent nemesis, Governor George Wallace of Alabama, stood on the other side. I endorse it. I think it was correct, King said. Contrary to what many have said, it sought to outlaw neither prayer nor belief in God. In a pluralistic society such as ours, who is to determine what prayer shall be spoken and by whom? Legally, constitutionally or otherwise, the state certainly has no such right. I'm strongly opposed to the efforts that have been made to nullify the decision. They have been motivated, I think, by little more than the wish to embarrass the Supreme Court. When I saw Brother Wallace going up to Washington to testify against the decision at the congressional hearings, it only strengthened my conviction that the decision was right. King would have been highly sceptical of the religious rights crusade for teaching creationism and intelligent design in public schools. King saw no need for religion and science to fight. Strength to Love, a collection of King's sermons, contains this King observation. Science deals mainly with facts. Religion deals mainly with values. These two are not rival. They are complementary. Science keeps religion from sinking into the valley of crippling irrationalism and paralyzing obscurantism. Religion prevents science from falling into the marsh of obsolete materialism and moral nihilism. In one of his most famous passages, King reminded Americans of the different roles religion and government play in society. The church must be reminded that it is not the master of the servant of the state, but rather the con conscious of the state. King observed in a sermon that was also published in Strength to Love. It must be the guide and the critic of the state and never its tool. If the church does not recapture its prophetic zeal, it will become an irrelevant social club without moral or spiritual authority. 
Christian nationalists sometimes try to try to claim King, but he was no friend of their views. Take a moment today and celebrate his true legacy of freedom. That actually is the dog's position too. We'll have a bit of a break and then Sorrel and Dale are going to bring us back to the last 10 years and what's happened to Gonski. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. 3CR. You're listening to the Dogs Program. We're very interested in both ideas and facts and figures in this uh, program. And we've got a little bit of both in the next article. No Gonski Nirvana, Why Australia's Most Ambitious Education Reforms Have Failed. And this is by Jordan Baker from the age of February the 19th. Over to Sol. Thanks, Jane. Ten years ago, then Prime Minister Julia Gillard pledged that a new school funding model would put Australia in the world's top five education systems by 2025, with its students among the leaders in reading, science and math. They would have the teachers, librarians and interactive whiteboards they needed. And each child would have their own learning plan, so struggling students were not left behind and bright students did not disengage. The inequities in the system, including the unfair and opaque distribution of public money, would be fixed. Overpaid private schools would no longer be given money they did not need, and by 2020, public schools would get every cent of the windfall they had been promised. The neediest neediest students would get the greatest support, regardless of where they went to school. I feel a deep responsibility to ensure every child in Australia has the education they deserve, Gillard said at the time. Underpinning Gillard's pledge was a review of school funding by a high-powered group led by businessman David Gonski which was made public on February the 20th, 2012, exactly 10 years ago last Sunday. Could I say something here? What's really interesting about this date is that it was written in 2011, uh, but it wasn't made public until 2012 because Gillard promised the Catholic education system that they could go away and look at it and have time to react, which they did and they kicked up a fuss. And part of that's one of the reasons um, why it's never really got off the ground. Um, uh, Trevor Cobalt came up with that very interesting fact. That is very interesting. Back to you, Sorrel. Its intentions were noble, its reforms were ambitious, but little of it has come to pass. As Dr. Glenn Savage, an expert on education reform at the University of Western Australia, says of the report and its ambitions, we've failed on every count. The failure of the Gonski reforms shows how politics, self-interest and a lack of forward thinking can derail even the most worthy objectives. Hundreds of billions of extra dollars have flowed into education across the country. Only some of that money has gone to where it is most needed. And the governments that provided it know little about how it was spent. They do know that it hasn't helped. 
Australian students have slid down the world rankings and now sit in 16th place in reading, 17th in science and 29th in math. NAPLAN results in maths and reading are either flatlining or inching upwards slowly. Many schools still do not have the equipment or the teachers they need and the learning gap between the most advantaged and disadvantaged students has grown. Public schools have not received all the money they were told they would get, and they probably never will. Before the Gonski Review, education funding was a mess. Federal funding to the non-government school sector increased under the Howard government, but the system was complicated, opaque, and gave more to some schools than others without any apparent reason. Gillard, who declined to be interviewed for this story, wanted equity and transparency, and the Gonski panel came up with a plan for a standard amount to be spent on each Australian student, which would increase if they had special needs and decrease in private schools, depending on how much their parents could afford to pay. Public schools teach the most disadvantaged students, so their funding should have risen significantly. It hasn't. Government information given to Senate estimates show that in the 20 years to 2020, government funding to government schools has grown by 53%, whilst government funding to private schools has grown by 98.7%. Between 2009 and 10 and 2019 and 2020, per student funding for private school students increased by $3,338 adjusted for inflation, compared with just $703 per student for public schools, according to calculations by Trevor Cobalt from Save Our Schools. Research by other organizations, such as the Grattan Institute, has reached the same conclusion. Looking back, sectarian education politics were always going to stymie funding reform, even before the report was handed down. Gillard, under pressure from the opposition and private school sectors, promised no school would lose a dollar. That was wrong-headed, said Carmen Lawrence, the former West Australian Premier and Federal MP, who was also on the Gonski panel, entering into deals with various education systems and saying no schools would lose any funding over time. These were all constraints that made it well-nigh impossible to achieve the objectives we set. The Catholic and independent sectors fight hard for their own interests, particularly when it comes to funding, and can galvanize the voting power of their parents in a way that non-government, sorry, in a way that government schools cannot. The politics of education can be so divisive in our country and have been for so long, says Dr. Savage. Education debates can win elections, but they can also be the nail in the coffin for governments. Ken Boston, a former Director General of the New South Wales Education Department, was on the Gonski panel. He wishes it had done some things differently. One was the recommendation of an annual government funding increase of 15%. We debated at great length whether to include a figure, he says. We decided to, and I think that that was a tactical error. It gave governments, both state and federal, a way to avoid the political challenges of restructuring the existing funding arrangement. Lawrence says another major error was delay. The panel had representatives from all states and sectors, had lively debates, but agreed on the path forward. The reforms also had support from everyone from the Business Council to the Australian Financial Review, but the government delayed its response. 
The delay came for political reasons and that momentum was lost, she says. With big changes, you need to put your foot on the accelerator. The more you wait, which is code for people who put their foot forward in special interest pleading, you are likely to lose a lot of the potential. One idea strongly supported by the review is that the extra money for disadvantaged schools should have been spent directly on those schools. This was quickly abandoned. The money instead went to the school systems, state and Catholic, to hand out as they saw fit. Those systems saw the proposal as a constraint upon their capacity to move taxpayer funds across schools, Boston says. It would no longer be possible for non-government systems to provide competitive low-fee schools at the middle and upper ends of the socioeconomic scale at the expense of schools at the lower end of the scale. We didn't sandbag ourselves sufficiently against pushback we'd get from the state and church systems. The same sector politics cruelled an attempt by coalition Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull to take money off the overfunded private schools in 2017. A rebellion by Catholic schools ahead of important by-elections was one of the factors that ended his prime ministership. His successor, Scott Morrison, gave the sectors what they wanted and the political problem went away. Many in the sector also say the original Gonski reforms failed to consider how the billions of dollars in extra funding should be spent to ensure Gillard's plans for improving Australia's educational outcomes were achieved. In New South Wales, the New South Wales Department of Education gave public school, princi- gave public school principals their so-called Gonski money, extra funding for disadvantaged students, as a lump sum to use as they thought best, with little requirement to explain how they spent it, let alone any need to demonstrate how those many decisions improve their students' learning. The non-government sector has even less accountability. Neither New South Wales nor the Commonwealth government had much of an idea where their billions of dollars in extra funding were going. Savage says the initial Gonski funding push should have been accompanied by a discussion about how the money should be used. That did not begin until several years later, with another report led by David Gonski, commissioned by the coalition and published in 2018, on how to achieve educational excellence in schools. That second report didn't have much of an impact and didn't really do what it was supposed to do, Savage says. It didn't really provide a strong sense of what those proven strategies are that the money should be best targeted towards. It veered off into side areas that didn't really have an evidence base when it comes to spending. No education policy or plan or grand vision means anything if those visions are not translated into the chalk face on the ground, says Savage. It did open a bigger debate around whether the primary issue is how much schools get, is it what schools do with the money, or is it both? Most schools would say that money does matter but it only matters up to a certain point. And beyond that, it's about targeting things with an evidence base. Questions about how the money should be spent are still being answered. Governments are hoping the recent establishment of the Australian Education Research Organisation, which investigates the evidence behind educational strategies and how they should be used in the classroom, will help find answers. The Gonski reforms were one were just one part of the Rudd-Gillard government's ambitious plans for education. 
Others included a national curriculum, national teaching standards, and national literacy and numeracy tests, known as NAPLAN. Since that so-called national architecture was introduced, student results have ranged from marginally better to significantly worse. Savage says the next era of education reform should be more focused on classrooms than federal visions. I think it's dead in the water, that stuff, Savage says. The era of the revolution and the era of education gurus telling us what to do in schools needs to be over if it's not already. People are starting to realise that no education policy or plan or grand vision means anything if those visions are not translated into the chalk face on the ground. Lawrence says the Gonski reforms did have a positive impact on Australian education. The principle of trying to improve the inequalities in Australia's education system was enshrined in legislation. That became an important touchstone against which we could measure achievement, she says. The idea of a school resourcing standards, the cost of educating a child, which we would recommend, the detail has been mishandled, but the principle had merit. More reform is needed, she says, but the momentum is not there. What we need is a far-sighted vision, she says. We did try to deal with this question of how the different school systems evolved. It's incoherent and it's not fair. The federal government should get out of schooling. Ideally, you'd have a single source, which would be a state government. And if they failed to deliver, it's on them. It's very clear. The first step to more effective education reform, says Boston, is to correct the impression that the Gonski reforms have bipartisan support and will be implemented by the end of the decade. There's not going to be some Gonski nirvana in 2029, he says. The public must be made aware that while much has been done in the name of Gonski, not much of Gonski has in fact been done. And some of what is being done at the present time falsely carries the Gonski brand. The cost to the country, Boston says, is the potential of children still languishing in disadvantaged schools. The real issue here is not social justice, he says. It's about concentrating on those schools that are underperforming and disadvantaged. That's where we can build human capital. At the moment, it's like leaving a valuable mineral in the ground. Very interesting, isn't it? Um, and thank you very much, Sorrel. It's a, it's a long article with a lot of um, important ideas in it, not least that children are human capital and that not looking after them properly in their schools is like leaving a valuable mineral in the ground. I'm afraid I'm not, I don't quite go along with that. Our dog's position, of course, is that Agonsky was never going to get off the ground because um, Gillard suddenly realised that she was dealing with the uh, Catholic Church and the independent school lobbyists. And they've grown in both wealth and lobbying power because of taxpayers' money, the billions and billions of dollars of it that has been siphoned out of the Treasury into their treasuries. I'm not sure that Gillard, who was a state school girl, realised just how powerful they were. The dog's position is, of course, that needs policies are never going to succeed. The only way forward is to have a, a strong public system, which is open to all children the way it is in Finland, and um, to withdraw the billions of dollars in going to the, uh, 
the private schools or just take them over because we're paying for them now anyway. And Australia altogether would be much, much better off. But um, there are quite a few people who agreed with us, I think, weren't there? Dale has got some comments on this article, so over to you, Dale. Dice says, who is the current policy aimed at appeasing the Catholic Church? The 1981 High Court decision to allow the public funding of religious schools has disadvantaged public schools and, in defiance of the Constitution, established religious organisations. Worst decision ever. And then Andrew said, the reality is that Julia Gillard's ideology of fairness and equity is only sustainable if the Labor Party remained in government. Once Tony Abbott was elected, his ideology of look after our own was adopted and Catholic and independent schools were advantaged. Megaphone says, we failed on every count. It's no coincidence that since Gillard, extreme neoliberal capitalist ideology has gathered momentum to the current point and it will get worse. It's an absolute insult to many taxpayers that so much of our money is being poured into the world's largest private school sector. Successive LNP governments have succeeded in creating a two-class system of education that underpins the widening gap in Australian civil society. This must be stopped. The LNP lies and spin about caring for the battler is absolute BS. Wake up, Australia. Chapster suggests that uh, compulsory public schooling for the children of all ministers should fix the problem. And Doofus says the LNP do not want a fair funding model. They want a continuation of private school excess at the expense of public schools. They don't want to see disadvantaged students succeed. They just want it all to fail so they can blame it all on the teachers all for the ability to launch ideological attacks on their union. Children's well-being does not matter to them. Trim the Cat said, the rich and powerful send their children to private schools. They do not want fairness in the system. They want the best for their own children and them alone. The privilege factories continue and Australia is poorer for the overall outcome. Then uh, Dan says, successful schools in the recent HSC funded their human resource, their teachers. Sandstone pavers and other edifices have nothing to do with better education. A memo to private schools. Then Dennis said, Gillard, who declined to be interviewed for this story, I don't blame her because like the NBN, once the LNP won government in September 13th, it was open slather for some of the most immature operators and the greatest wreckers running Australia that this nation has ever seen. I presume NDIS and every other Labor initiative followed the same trajectory. Dye says the chart appears to show that the LNP is ideologically opposed to equality in education, with ever-increasing amounts going to often wealthy private schools while public schools are left scrambling for the scraps. Mr Morrison likes to talk contemptuously of the politics of envy and yet time and again we see those who neither need nor deserve additional resources lavished with taxpayer dollars simply because they can leverage more votes and or run their lobbying more effectively. 
Meanwhile, the only advocate for public education, the education departments, are ignored and sidelined and education unions are disparaged. Ghastly government on so many levels. Oh, yeah, and who'd have thought the LNP would drive a former Labor policy into a failure over a 10-year period and then blame the architects? This should surprise no one. Thank you very much for that. But to be fair, my memory is that Mr Birmingham was prepared to confront some of the really wealthy schools and lost his job as a, as a result. Um, and uh, he's now, I think, the Trades Minister. But uh, he, people try. They've tried and tried. And then suddenly the um, when people have got something, it's very hard to take it away from them, isn't it? But I suppose it will take a revolution. But we'll have a bit of a break. And um, Jeff has got a very interesting story for us about the shock that Mr Gonsk got when he was actually at the grassroots of our school system. It's all about a voice in our own country. We've got a reason to be screaming out, where's our voice in this country? You know, not that I want to be a part of the Constitution for that, you know. That's why 3CR is so important to, to me and this community here. We've got a voice, but it's not... You know, we're entitled to a bigger voice than what we've got, but it's all about having a voice. Subscribe to 3CR, fiercely independent and community controlled. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 03 9419 8377. Want to defend government schools? We are the DOGS, D-O-G-S, Defenders of Government Schools. Every week on the DOGS program we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. If you're a parent or if you're a kid or if you're involved in the school in any way whatsoever and you love your state school, give 3CR a call. We want to hear about these schools that we're defending. Brunswick Secondary State schools are great. Parkaway Primary School. Sunshine North Primary School. They're really concerned about the welfare of the kids and their growth as people as well as learning. Like you put on plays, you've got enrichment, you've got physical education, visual arts, languages, all that. In fact, is there a cooking? Actually an embracing of kids from disadvantaged backgrounds and with additional needs. More than half of your kids are from some of the poorest families in Australia. Yeah, definitely. That's the community and that's who we're servicing and that's that's who we welcome into the school. Outdoor play is linked to healthier and happier children. This, in turn, leads to better grades. In the weekly assemblies and stuff, they have a little thing, uh, you've been caught being good, and they have a a value of the week each week, and so it's not just words that is actually... So so what do the teachers do when it's a building site? Yeah, they kick themselves out of their own staff room and turn it into a classroom. Just a really nice culture and an emphasis on social skill building as well as learning. Quite a range of intellectual ability and kids with mental health diagnoses, refugee kids, kids who have not been in the country very long don't necessarily start off with a Positive great Positive relationships with each other, with the teachers and with the community. And they run a, a breakfast club. There's a recognition that some kids don't get breakfast and so there's, there's food on. If you are involved in a state school and it's a great school, we'd love to hear from you so we can talk about it and tell the world. Leave a message for the dogs at 3CR on 9419 State schools are great schools. Great state schools. Well, you're still listening to the Dogs Program and here's Jeff with a tale not of two cities but a tale of two Australian schools. Over to you, Jeff. 
Yeah, thanks, Gene. This is actually an edited extract from a new book that's out now by Tom Greenwell and Chris Bonner. It's called Waiting for Gonski, How Australia Failed Its Schools. So this is Chris Bonner and Tom Greenwell. It was only after Julia Gillard invited him to review the funding of Australia's schools in 2010 that David Gonski realised how much education had transformed his own life. I remember sitting with Ken Boston and I suspect Catherine Greiner in a subcommittee we were planning and suddenly it hit me, it was like a bolt out of the blue, that my father was educationally disadvantaged. Gonski recalls, almost a decade later, I hadn't thought that through before because my dad was a brain surgeon and so I started to talk to my mother. My father was already dead and it all came to me so clearly. David Gonski's grandparents were dirt poor migrants from Eastern Europe who arrived in South Africa with little money and even less English. Their son, Gonski's father, was an extremely bright child, but it was only the assistance of philanthropic scholarships that enabled him to continue studies beyond school, eventually completing a degree in medicine. When David was still a boy, his parents left South Africa for Australia, where he would rise to become one of Australia, the country's leading businessmen, a famed networker amongst Sydney's rich and powerful, and a noted patron of the arts and philanthropist in his own right. Ultimately, what happened because of that beneficence was that my father became a brain surgeon and I had a great life, Gonski reflects. I had never focused on my dear dad until we started talking about this. Then I realised, actually, this was the destiny of the review. One morning in early 2011, in the course of conducting the school funding review that would bear his name, Gonski left his Point Piper home to visit two primary schools, Villawood North Public School and Sacred Heart School in Sydney's West. Upon arriving at the first school, he discovered the principal dealing with broken glass from a break-in the night before. As he sat waiting in the school's reception, Gonski observed a flow of children arriving for the school day. Almost all were, like his father, the children of of migrants from non-English speaking backgrounds, and many were from families as poor as his father's had been. When the principal had finished dealing with the immediate issues, he and Gonski toured the school, discussing the challenges it faced. Most of the kids didn't see a book outside the school, Gonski recalls to us, his shock still apparent. No books. I asked the principal the question, what is the relationship between the school and the parents? because I was interested, Gonski says. What's the involvement of parents? It was a reasonable question, and yet as soon as he asked it, Gonski realised how removed he was from the realities of facing this school. The principal looked at him and smiled and said, David, my job is to get the kids in here by 9am in the morning. Getting the parents in here at all is almost an impossibility, adding that 40% of the student role changed each year and his focus that year was on improving attendance. Gonski's next destination was just down the road. He thought he would go on foot, but the principal advised him to drive. He was just not happy with my assuming that it was safe for me to walk, something I'd never thought of in my own city. It's possible to imagine Gonski driving away from the school, pondering his father's story. How likely was it that a child of poor migrants with little English growing up in these circumstances would end up becoming a neurosurgeon? A growing body of evidence suggested it was increasingly improbable NAPLAN, the National Assessment Program Literacy and Numeracy, results in 2009 showed that Year 9 students in hard scrabble areas of Sydney had poorer literacy and numeracy than Year 5 children in the wealthier parts of town that Gonski was more familiar with. It seemed that our schools were merely reproducing inequalities that existed outside the school gate and sometimes making them even worse. 
Only a few minutes' drive away, Sacred Heart School seemed a world away. I just saw that in the morning, the difference between the way the world the schools were operating, Gonski reflects, almost a decade later. Every child was perfectly turned out in magnificent school uniforms. I was greeted by a concert, which was a short one, beautiful singing by the kids. The headmaster was in total control of his buildings. They were perfect. This school served a quite different group of children from the school down the road. Gonski asked the principal whether he faced the truancy problems experienced at the school he had just come from. Truancy? I've got a waiting list for the school. If we have truancy, I tell the parents to take their kids away. David Gonski believed that the opportunity his father had had to transform his lot should be the birthright of every Australian child, that differences in educational outcomes should not be the result of differences in wealth, income, power or possessions, in the words of the report that would take his name. Even though we were immigrants to this country, my father had a very good profession. He saved lives. I had a lovely life. Why? Because of education. And yet, that morning in 2011, visiting those two nearby schools in Western Sydney, Gonski had witnessed close up the growing divergence between the responsibilities Australian schools faced and the resources they had to meet them. The Gonski Review found that in successful school systems internationally, students were able to achieve their best irrespective of their background or the school that they attended. But that was less the case in Australia. The impact of family background on education outcomes in Australia was much more pronounced than in comparable countries like Canada. And the gap in the learning outcomes between disadvantaged Australian children and their more privileged peers was growing. In response to these challenges, the Gonski report offered a seemingly compelling solution. Firstly, identify the resourcing enjoyed by those schools where most students were achieving above minimum national standards, then take that as the best guide to the necessary resourcing for a successful education and call it the baseline level of funding which all students, students should receive. It would also be necessary to provide additional funding loadings on top of the baseline for those children who experience disadvantages that impede their learning and for schools in remote or rural locations or with small student populations that face higher costs. Thirdly, set up an architecture to continually, continuously verify and evaluate the calculations underpinning the first two steps. Implementing Gonski's resource standard would require a substantial national investment, a 15% increase on current expenditure. Modelling conducted by the review indicated that three quarters of the additional spending would flow to public schools reflecting the high levels of social disadvantage in that sector. But where disadvantaged students were enrolled in non-government schools, they too would receive additional resourcing. School funding would be needs-based and sector-blind. And yet, despite all the optimism generated by the Gonski Report and the remarkable consensus that coalesced around it, the problems of Australian education have only worsened since the report was commissioned. International tests show that young Australians are getting less and less out of the education we are providing them. Underlying the headline averages, we find the same old equity story in which social disadvantage is a powerful predictor of low educational achievement. On average, kids from the poorest quarter of the population are three years of learning behind children in the top quarter. In 2010, Prime Minister Julia Gillard insisted that demography should not determine destiny, but the reality for far too many Australian children in 2022, is that it still does. Real change or rhetoric?
Visiting the, those schools, Villawood North Public School and Sacred Heart School in 2011, David Gonski witnessed a real distance between them. A decade later, something has certainly changed, but not in the way he had hoped. The two schools are now much further apart. While they are both in low SES area, 66% of Villawood North public schools enrolment now falls into the most disadvantaged quarter, up from 46% in 2011. Just 30% of the Catholic schools enrolment falls into this quarter. Given such a change, it would be expected that the funding differences between the schools would reflect the relative needs of each school's enrolment, but that hasn't happened. For the following seven years, government per student funding alone to the Catholic school exceeded government funding to the poorer public school. Today, the less needy school still has a resource advantage, particularly when fee income is added to its public funding. In its configuration and implementation, the review that carried his name has failed one of these two schools visited by David Gonski. Even more important are the implications for this for student achievement. Using NAPLAN as a guide, the Catholic school doesn't seem to be going backwards, but neither is it going forward. Its year five reading and numeracy scores have remained largely unchanged, as has the school's position compared to schools enrolling similar students. By contrast, the increasingly disadvantaged public schools reading and numeracy scores have fallen. While many things have an impact on school achievement, the school's increasing concentration of disadvantaged children, along with declining results, points to the hold that peer effects have on learning outcomes. The achievement gaps between the two schools have widened. The Gonski Review somewhat heroically explained how Australia's schools were funded. Achieving greater equity, it said, was critical. We weren't there in 2011, we still aren't there today. As far as needs-based funding goes, all we have is a greater commitment to the rhetoric. So that was found in an article on the, in The Guardian. Well, thank you very much. There were 203 uh, comments to that uh, article. And um, here's just one of them. Uh, my American ex-husband was gobsmacked when he first moved to Australia and learned that private schools here received any taxpayer funding at all. In the US, if you choose to go outside the public system, then you choose to go truly private and truly independent of all government funding, unless, of course, you go to a charter school. US private schools fund themselves via private means, as they should. Maybe we could solve this terrible inequality in educational funding by copying the US approach or voting out Liberal National Coalition governments around our country because they are the purveyors of this sort of inequality. They don't govern for all Australians, they only govern for their own. Our problem, of course, is that the, um, the Labor Party are not always very much better, as we saw with Gillard, who in the end shilly-shallied about the whole business. Well, you're still listening to the Drugs Program, I hope, and up in New South Wales, there's some pretty good activists who fight for the public schools you see, even though they don't get all the money that the private schools get, the teachers make a difference. And uh, our public school teachers are pretty special people. Let's hear this story, Maddie. Over to you. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Jean. Yes, teachers at Prairiewood High School in Western Sydney demonstrated their disgust with the New South Wales government's refusal to act on unsustainable workloads and uncompetitive salaries during a visit by the Education Minister, Sarah Mitchell, today. That was on February 25th. And after the minister walked into Prairiewood High School, 
Federation members walked out. The minister, indeed, all members of the government can can expect more of this in the absence of genuine government action on the teacher shortage and its underlying causes, unsustainable workloads and uncompetitive salaries. That the government is pursuing a new award that seeks to impose a 2.04% salary cap with no change to the crippling working conditions experienced by the profession for a three-year period is contemptuous. At a time when inflation is running at 3.5% and predicted to grow, this would constitute a cut to teachers' real income and status of the profession. The decision to suspend industrial action during term one gives the government a singular opportunity to resolve the matters regarding teachers' salaries and workload by negotiation and mutual agreement. Unless the government demonstrates that it is serious in providing improvements in working conditions and salary justice by mid-March, then the Federation will consider the full suite of options available to it, including the recommencement of industrial action. It is time, Mr. Perrottet, the Education Minister and the New South Wales Government entered into genuine negotiations to resolve the current dispute. Thank you, um, Angelo Gavrilados, who is the New South Wales Teachers Federation President. How good is that? Yes, well, uh, they've always been good activists up there in the north, says she. Um, Because I started there, I was a teacher in that system. But um, we'll have a little bit of a break. I think Welcome to Country is a very dangerous concept and initiative. I really don't know where Welcome to Country even merged from. I know that I don't think it was obviously an Aboriginal initiative. I think obviously governments had uh, introduced that as they were pacifying our flag of resistance. You know, the idealism that lies behind that obviously is so that white people can feel a sense that they're more guests and they've got a right of ownership and to be here. If we're going to continuously welcome them to country, what that does, it rectitudes the fact of the moral racism issues in which they perpetrate against our people. Because how can we be talking about all these other issues and then compromise a hypocrisy in our own selves to welcome these murderers and these uh, slave traders and this barbaric sense of what they've done to occupy Australia on one hand and, and welcome them on the other. You're listening to Radical Radio 3CR. Looking for an easy way to keep up with your annual 3CR subscription? You can now set up an annual debit from your bank account or credit card and once a year your payment will be automatically deducted. You can cancel at any time and you'll get a reminder each year before payment. Be a constant supporter of Melbourne's precious independent community radio station and set up a recurring payment today. Just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe.
Will. You're still listening to the Dogs Program, and here's our American expert. Over to you, Jeff. Thanks, Jean. Just a little bit of good news from, from the American United website. Americans United applauds the nomination of Ketanji Brown Jackson to the US Supreme Court. Americans United for Separation of Church and State President and CEO Rachel Laser issued the following statement in response to President Joe Biden nominating Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson to the US Supreme Court. Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson is an eminently qualified jurist with a proven record of fighting to bring our country closer to its promise of equal justice to, for all. As the first black woman to serve on the US Supreme Court in our nation's history, she will help ensure the court better reflects America and includes perspectives that have long been ignored. While Judge Jackson does not have an extensive record on church-state separation issues, we urge her to distinguish herself as a champion of our country's foundational principle of separation of religion and government, which protects religious freedom for all of us. We look forward to a further examining her record throughout the confirmation process. We look to Judge Jackson to be a bulwark against the court's ultra-conservative majority who seem set on redefining religious freedom as a sword to harm others instead of a shield to protect all of us. We deserve a justice who will defend our country's foundational principle of separation of religion and government, like our democracy depends on it, because it does. And we also have a small article here from Diana Ravitch, who is a bastion of defence of public education in America. And she says, watch out, Koch Foundation is funding new education models. And she goes on, it's a mystery about times why so many billionaires have assumed the power to meddle in education. Gates, Waltons, Bloomberg, Koch, DeVos, Rock, and many more like to play the role of education minister. I have an almost complete list of the billionaires who dabble in education in my book, Slaying Goliath. I say almost because after the book was published, I found more billionaires who were messing up schools like Tim Dunn in Texas and the Albertsons in Idaho. I'm sure I missed others. The Charles Koch Foundation Foundation announced that it is funding a competition for new models of education. Launched on January 25th, 2022, the Catalyzed Challenge will bring together leading philanthropies and nonprofits to support a grant challenge that will generate new models focused on empowering learners to discover their aptitudes and develop new skills towards a more fulfilling career pathway. Consistent with its efforts to remove barriers facing learners across the country, the Charles Koch Foundation is proud to partner with the Catalyzed Challenge. Brennan Brown, the Foundation's Director of Partnership Development, will serve as an advisor. The Catalyzed Challenge will provide funding for education entrepreneurs to develop and scale learner-centric career-connected models and experiences. The contest is managed by Common Group. Funders include the Walton Family Foundation, the American Student Assistance, uh, the, the Charter School Growth Fund and Arnold Ventures. We know that Charles Koch has one overriding goal, to privatise education and cut costs by passing them on to families. If anyone can decipher the bromides behind his catalyzed challenge, give it a try. Diana Rabich is always on the money and, and an early warning canary in the coal mine. And now, and now for some good news in Australia. It's over to Maddie and the great state schools. Every week on the Doctor Program, we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. State schools are great. Schools. School of the week. State school. School of the week. Great state schools. State schools. School of the week. School for the week here on the Dogs Program.
and this week's great state school is Coburg High School. Congratulations, Coburg High School. And this is a very special school up there in the north. Uh, those of us who've been around for a while might remember how the Fitzroy High School and uh, uh, the Coburg Primary School, and I believe there was a Coburg um, Technical School. These schools were closed by Mr Kennett back in the 1990s. But the parents up there in the north have fought to get them back. And this Coburg High School in its current form was started in as, early, as late, actually, as 2015, although it had been around for many, many years before that. The Northland College was another one uh, that was under threat, and there was a big fight for that because that was uh, it had a very special program for Indigenous children. And that one was saved. But the Coburg State School was sold to a religious organisation and is now a religious school, unfortunately. But, um, yes, yeah, so let's hear about Coburg High School. Over to you, Betty. Absolutely. I'm going to read something out from the Coburg High School website. Um, it reads, although this most recent version of Coburg High School has only been operating since, like Jean said, 2015, our school has grown rapidly and has an excellent reputation in the local and broader community for our positive approaches to learning and well-being. In the 2022 school year, we will have in excess of 1,200 students and further growth is expected in coming years. Our NAPLAN results have grown year on year and in 2021 we showed excellent growth in BC outcomes with 6.1% of study scores of 40 plus compared to 3.2% in 2020. In addition, the results and responses on the annual debt parent opinion survey show that parents are, on the whole, highly satisfied with the school and the positive outcomes in all variables on the survey are well above the state average for schools. We are proud to educate the young people of the Coburg community and to showcase our vision and values. Um, also our approaches to teaching and learning, well-being supports, range of co-curricular programs and the talents and achievements of our students and staff. Our central purpose is to ensure that our students graduate to lead rewarding, responsible, prosperous, healthy and happy lives and to enable them to make significant contributions to the world. Our school values are excellence, integrity, curiosity and community. And these values underpin our goals, policies, practices, behaviours and decision making at Coburg High School. It is with great excitement that we announced some of the excellent VCE results of the class of 2021. The school's median study score has increased to 29, up from 28 in 2020. And there was also a significant increase in the number of students achieving study scores of 40 or above. Now I'm going to shoot some facts and figures at you. So there is 1,062 children enrolled at this school and the ICSIA value is also 1,062, weird coincidence, which is above average. Um, there's 32% of the students that come from the upper quartile of parental income. There is 31% in the second highest quartile and there is 24% in the third quartile and then in the lowest quartile there is 14% of students that are enrolled so really it's a school with both both advantaged and disadvantaged students and 30% speak a language other than English and 2% are Indigenous students. 
going to finances. The recurrent grants from the Australian government are $2.1 million, from the Victorian government, $8.3 million, fees and parental contributions, $1 million, and other private contributions are $596,000. It costs $13,000 to send a student to this school, which is an absolute bargain. A value for money, it sounds like. Yeah. So congratulations, Coburg High School. You are doing a wonderful job. Well, our time is gone and it's time to say goodbye once again. Thank you for being with us for this hour, uh, thinking about public education. And if you want to find out more about us or today's program, then go to the 3CR website or our website at www.adogs.info. But from Dale and Jeff and Oliver and Kim and Sorrel and Maddie and me, it's bye for now. I, but Joe, you're ten years dead. I 